Welcome, everybody. Welcome to uh, Walnut, here, Walnut Hill here in Bethel and online. Welcome to you and also at Greenwoods Church in Massachusetts and also in all of our campuses, Waterbury, Derby, and in New Milford. Um, I'm here with my friend Letitia, and um, I didn't want you to think there's just a random person sitting behind me the entire time. And Letitia and I are going to share the stage today, and I just want to introduce Letitia now, even before she comes to share because we want to really kind of flow in what we want to share with you today, and we're, we don't want to break it up. So I just want to introduce you to her. Um, she's not going to like this. I'm sorry, Letitia. I felt everyone needed to get to know you a little bit better. I know you don't love it when people talk about you in this way, but I'm, I'm going to hopefully make you feel a little bit good and also let them understand who you are. Um, first and foremost, Letitia and her husband, Jim, have become good friends. That's where we should start, I think. You know, we have had a chance to travel on a couple of occasions to Romania together. Um, actually, our connection with Gita, um, the ex-wrestler who now runs an awesome ministry in Romania to uh, those who are coming out of the prison system, and also he then has, has shifted into ministry to, in, into Ukraine. We've had such a nice connection there. That all started through our friendship with Letitia, Jim, and Steve Martin. And God has really done something awesome there. But long before that, well, not that long, but a little bit before that, Letitia uh, went, to, went to Harvard and graduated from Harvard. Then she got her MBA from Harvard as well. And um, she's the co-founder of Infused Impact, along with her husband and Steve. That, again, that's the connection that we have with Ukraine and with Romania. And she's been directing or serving on boards, lots of boards over the years, but primarily uh, when it comes to children, the whole idea of anti-trafficking ministries and care for children in extreme impoverished communities. Um, she also provides uh, consulting to nonprofits here in Connecticut, and she has served for over a decade as a licensed uh, pastor in Connecticut. You kept that from me for a little while, <laughs> but it's so glad to have you up here. The, you know, the truth is, though, you would have to, Letitia would never tell you any of those things. Now, if you ask Jim, Jim would tell you all about Letitia. She's, he's such a proud husband of his wife. What I love about Jim and Letitia and what I've really come to enjoy as I spend time with Letitia is her incredible heart for people. Uh, she truly cares for and prays for this church and us as leaders and her heart for those who are um, the most at risk is, is incredible. And it, it, I think we've dovetailed so well in lots of things, but particularly in that whole church in action area here at Walnut Hill. Of course, you know Letitia as a worship leader on our stage, but um, I'm very excited that I get to see uh, Letitia's debut on stage as a preacher uh, you're going to be excited to hear from her. So let's just make Letitia feel welcome. And then as we, as we get going this morning, we're going, I'm going to share a bit and I'm just going to hand it straight off and we're going to keep rolling right through this morning. What a great story, right? What an incredible story. And our drama team did a great job reading that for us to give us a sense of that great story. Many of you maybe, maybe know that story well. And if it's new to you, um, I just hope that um, we'll be able to kind of highlight some of the, the things in it that are really powerful. Um, if you remember, we've been in this series called By Faith, and it comes out of Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11.1 1 gives us this definition of faith. It says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. 
And then we've expanded it just a bit with a, a definition of our own. A deep conviction and sincere belief in God that leads to trust and action. And if you remember last week, I really spoke a lot about trust and action through the story of Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember that story, this incredible moment where, where, I, or, where Abraham is put to the test? The Lord tests him, and Abraham passes that test with flying colors by trusting the Lord fully in that situation. And I wanted to remind us last week that the Lord walks us into those tests. He gives us the test to find out if we're going to be faithful so he can continue to entrust more and more to us. And he walks with us through those things. And I hope that you were reminded of that last week. And previously, we had um, Pastor Greg up here sharing about Gideon, another great story. And and this week, another wonderful story. Let me give you just a little background on what's going on previous to what you've just heard us read. Now, Joshua had taken over from Moses, and Joshua now was, had done some serious damage on the east side of the Jordan River. You're going to see a, uh, a map that comes up on the screen there, and it's going to give you a little sense of the direction that they came from. They had been wandering for a few years in the wilderness, and now they were finally moving out. And on the east side of the Jordan, they had, they had come up on the Amorite kings, uh, Sihon and Og, and they had completely destroyed them. Now, this news had gotten to Jericho, where Rahab was from, and the people in Jericho were afraid. They were fearing for their lives. They thought, if this could happen to them, could it happen to us as well? Now, the town of Jericho was a thoroughly Canaanite town, pantheistic, meaning serving many, many gods, If you were to come into the city of Jericho, you would see a high place. Now, when I grew up thinking about high places, I always thought they were in high places. And and that can be true. But the high place in a city was just an elevated platform at the city gate that had all of the different gods that that city represented. In other words, if you want to know what uh, what gods this city um, worships, here they are on this elevated platform. And usually they were just stones that represented gods. And in, in Jericho, some of those gods were El and Atharat. They presided over Baal, the storm god, Yam, the sea god, and Mat, the god of the underworld. Just to name a few of the gods that they were serving. And as you walked into this city, you would have known, if something goes wrong for me, if things are challenging, I need to sacrifice to these gods. That are, that are represented here at the high place. They are the gods of this city. This is the kind of environment that Rahab was, was growing up in. And out of that, we see a, a woman who demonstrates this incredible faith. And you have to ask, where does it come from? We don't really exactly know, but we can pull a few ideas from what we see. The first I think that we see is we see this something in Rahab, she just has some strategic gifts. She has strategic faith, intelligent faith. She's, she's really incredible in the way she handles herself in this situation. And the contrast between the spies and kind of a, what seems to be a poorly hatched plan by these spies as compared to what Rahab does in the moment. I mean, she has to be on her toes, right? I mean, she has to make... She has to make up the story and figure it out so she can protect these spies right there on the spot. She is so in control of her emotions, it seems, because those who come to ask who were these people, she was able to fool them without them even guessing what was going on. 
They had come to spy on the land and they find themselves on the roof of Rahab's house hidden under flax. You see the, the, the humor in that? You can't see so well when you're hidden under a pile of flax. Not so good for spies. They seem to have come from, with this poorly constructed plan and it's Rahab's plan that saves them. Even the use of the location of her home is, is strategic and intelligent. If you ever come to Israel, you're going to see that many of the wall, the wall structures in the cities, what's left of them, by the way, in Jericho, there's not a lot of walls left. Imagine that, you know? And it, it really, when you go to the city, they have not been able to ex- excavate walls that are still fully constructed. Huh, how about that? Isn't it nice when archaeology just yet again proves our faith? It does. But if you go to a place like Masada, which is this high, this high um, fortress that was built by Herod the Great, what you'll see is this. Now, if you didn't know what this was, you would think, oh, it's like a little house, right? On the side of a mountain. But actually, this is the wall. It's the interior of the casement wall. It had one large wall in the front and then another one behind it. Now, why do you think they would want that? Well, a couple reasons. Number one, if that first wall is breached, you've got a second wall. That makes sense. But also, the soldiers would have, would have stayed and lived in these walls. And, in, and some of the poorer folks during non-war times would have taken residence inside these walls. So now can you picture this story that we've just read? Rahab's story and how, where she lived was so strategic. Inside the wall, able to save these spies because of where she lived. An incredible misdirection that she uses as well. She lets the soldiers believe that the spies had come into her home and left. Then she misdirects them by saying, if you go that way quickly, you might catch them. What did she know? She knew that at a certain time of the evening, those Jericho walls were going to close, and no matter who you were, you weren't getting back in. So as they leave, boom, walls closed, spies saved. It's an awesome wild goose chase that those spies must, that those uh, guards must have gone on all night trying to find these individuals. She then strategizes with those spies to plan the safety of herself and her entire family. She becomes the savior of her entire family. That's, that's some incredible intelligence, intelligence and strategic faith, isn't it? I love Rahab's story. Secondly, curious faith. She's curious. We know this because here she was growing up in this pantheistic society in the city of Jericho, and somehow she is interested enough in the God Yahweh that she takes a major risk to save those spies. She'd heard how those Israelites had escaped Egypt on dry land through the Red Sea many years before. She must have heard it. She heard what happened to Sihon and Og. In fact, again, in Joshua 2.9, it says, I know the Lord has given you this land. We are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. Even though she's grown up in that society, she shows us great curiosity. Joshua 2.11 says, no, no wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Here, before anything has happened for Rahab, in regards to seeing God act, she's already proclaiming who, who God is. That's some curious faith. She's aware of the signs of the times. She sees what's happening around her. 
And she has certainty that Israel's going to win because of their God. Was she hearing from God, I wonder? I think she was. I think the Lord speaks to those who are even far from God at times, to draw them to himself. And I think Rahab was on that journey in a powerful way even before the spies showed up at her door. And friends, I want to tell you, the Lord loves our curiosity. He loves it. He's not afraid afraid of our difficult questions. He welcomes them. He understands that we are on a journey of faith. Rahab was on a journey of faith, and if she hadn't asked some of the questions that she had, she may not have made the decision she made because she put herself in grave danger in order to save these spies. I just want to tell you one short story that reminds me of this. Through our Church in Action partners, we, we support a missionary family in Nigeria. In the, in the last few years, they have been ministering to a tribal group called the Fulani people. And if you know anything about the Fulani people, uh, they, they have been... Uh, in warring between each other for so many years. But what's been happening is they've been meeting Jesus and they've been meeting Jesus in miraculous ways through dreams and visions. So powerful that they're leaving their communities and going to try to find out who this Jesus is that they are seeing in their dreams because they're experiencing such peace from these visions that they want to find out what is this. They've grown up in a society where they are completely surrounded by violence and we get, we get the chance, actually, to have built a training center for the Fulani people to come, be trained, and then what do they do? They go straight back into their communities so they can see their families meet Jesus. Very dangerous, what they're doing. But that's the curiosity that drives them out of their homes and out of their comfort systems to go understand who this Jesus is and to step back in. I think it's similar to what we see in Rahab, and it reminds us that we... Our curiosity is embraced by the Lord. But I, I want to challenge you, though. When you are curious, go to the source to find out the answers to your questions. Go to the source, not to the online source, <laughs> to the Word of God. Go to the source and find out what the Lord has to say to us. Go to trusted counselors in person, face to face. And work out those questions you have. Don't sit back, but go forward and find out what the Lord has to speak to you through your curiosity. What a great example that we have in Rahab. And, and these Fulani believers who are now going back and seeing their own brothers, sisters, mothers, and fathers, and kids come to know Jesus because of their curiosity. I think next, next we see in Rahab an incredible courage. And I'm going to ask Letitia if you come and begin sharing for us. Thank you, Craig. Yeah. Thank you for your, your kind words, which were, were unexpected. And I do, I do want to honor the leadership of this house, the pastors, the elders, um, and acknowledge that it's no small thing to give a pulpit to someone. And, and so I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak and, and do justice to this opportunity. But I want to talk to us this morning about what the story of Rahab teaches us about faith. And uh, there are several things that I want to bring out, but the first is that faith is an action verb. Not literally in the grammatical sense. 
because it's, it's, it's a noun. But in practicality, faith is action. And the pastors have been talking about this for the last several weeks, about faith in action, because faith is more than a mental assent or an agreement with a set of ideas or a theology or, or a set of tenets. And sometimes we confuse the word faith with belief. We talk about being a people of faith or having faith almost as if it's synonymous with religion. And it is not. Faith is certainly informed by our belief, but it's well more than our belief. Faith, I think we can simply put it like this. Faith is what we believe put into action. This is what got Jesus' attention. And this is what he recognized as faith. You know, there was the story of a Roman centurion who came to Jesus and he came because he saw something in Jesus. He saw something different. And so he comes to him to ask for healing for his servant. And he, he, he recognizes, says, I'm a commander. I know how things work. You, you give an order and it's done. But he saw in Jesus authority in an unseen world. He said, you just speak the word and it will be accomplished. You don't even have to come to my house. And Jesus looked at him and he said, wait a minute, you don't, you don't come from the family of faith. You don't have all the right theology. You're a Roman soldier, and yet you believe this, and you've taken action to come to me, exposing yourself in front of the whole Roman authority on that belief, and Jesus was blown away. In another story, there's a group of friends who bring their paralytic friend. Remember this story? And the, the place where Jesus was teaching was so packed they couldn't get in, so they cut a hole on the roof and they lowered their friend down. And again, Jesus said, that is faith. There's a scripture in the book of James that really very sharply makes this point about faith, belief in action. It comes from James chapter two. And there's a long section on this, but I'm just gonna read to us three verses. 17, 18, and 19 say, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith, I have deeds. Ah, we're all different. I, I've got the, I got the belief, you've got the works. Ah, we're all different. And he, James replies, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. Those are some tough words, tough words. I'll reiterate that first line of the passage. Faith without action is dead. That's why I said faith is, an, is a verb. It is action. It is, not, it is not passive, but it demands action. It demands a response to what you see and what believe. It demands that we put our money where our mouth is. That's, it demands taking a risk. That's why we have the expression, you ever heard the expression, a leap of faith? Yes? That, that expression evokes an image, does it not? It evokes an image of sort of standing out like, like on a ledge or a precipice and looking out and you can't see the bottom. You can't see, if I were to go forward, what would I land into? Maybe you can't even see much at all ahead of you at all. But you believe that there is 
something in front of you. You believe that there is a landing and you take a leap out into the unknown. Like Peter stepping out of a boat onto water that should not have held him. Faith in the natural looks like a whole lot of risk in the natural. And in fact, the story of Rahab shows us that because as Pastor Craig said, Rahab took great risk in helping the Israelites and siding with them. She put in jeopardy her home, her business, her very life. In all likelihood, if she had been found out, she would have been executed for treason and possibly her entire family. She took enormous risk. And it doesn't appear that she really had to in the natural. If you, if you read the narrative, you see she had some relationship with the king. They were on speaking terms. She could have gone to the king and petitioned him for safety and protection for herself and her family in the onslaught of these Israelites coming. That would have been the logical thing to do. But she didn't. Because she saw something. Just like that Roman centurion looked at Jesus and saw something. This woman looked at the Israelites and she saw something. And she saw that their God was stronger than the God of, God of Jericho. In fact, their God was God. And based on that belief, she took a leap of faith. Extraordinary risk. Now, we would look at that and say, wow, that was a very courageous thing to do, as Craig was saying earlier. It certainly was. But I actually want to say something to us about, about courage, something I learned this very week. I was having a conversation with the friend you just mentioned, with Gitza, earlier this week. And, and as you know, as you may or may not know, he and his team and he personally have been working for well over a year to bring uh, food and supplies into war-torn parts of Ukraine and then bring children and orphans out. It's very arduous and dangerous work. And so he was telling me that on his last trip just a few weeks ago, going into a particularly dangerous place, he, uh, when he got there, he said he, he told them that he wanted to go to a place where nobody else wanted to go and these people had, hadn't had gotten food shipments for weeks. And when they got there, one of the locals said to him, wow, you must be a very courageous person to do what you're doing. And his reply was, I'm not courageous. I just trust God. Now that, my friends, is true courage. Because courage isn't about our bravado or our toughness or having confidence or putting trust in our, our strength and our ability to work it all out. It's in the absence of all of that. It's in the absence of seeing all the answers of how it's all going to work. It's putting ourselves into the hands of God. Hallelujah. That is courage. And that is the stuff of faith. Amen? Yes. All right, you all with me this morning? With us? Yes, amen. So the first, the first lesson is faith is an action verb. But the second one is that faith in action brings reward. I want to read to you from Hebrews 11, chapter 6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. 
That's a beautiful passage because it tells us that faith is what pleases God. It is our faith that pleases God. It's our faith that gets his attention. In fact, God is actively seeking faith. There's a scripture in 2 Chronicles that says that the eyes of the Lord roam the entire earth searching for what? For faith. And when he finds it, he rewards it by releasing his favor on it. His favor for what? The Bible tells us for what? His favor for miracles. That's what the scripture tells us. His favor for miracles. Miracles for lives changed all around us. The miracle of the kingdom of God being extended and expanded. The miracle of light shining into darkness. The miracle of souls being rescued. The miracle of the course of events on this earth being altered and changed in ways we could not imagine, but that bend it according to the arc of God's justice and his destiny for this world. If we want to be world changers, we need to be men and women of faith. Because that is what will change the world. It's not our plans. It's not our ideas. It's not our good intentions. It's not our talk. It's not our theology. It's none of those things. It's our faith that moves mountains. It's our faith that releases the power of God. It is our faith that will change the world. Amen. 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 Praise God. So while faith releases favor on us to bless this world, I have to tell you, it also releases favor on us, the favor of God on us. And we see that displayed in Rahab's story because not only were she and her immediate family favored, their lives were spared, but we, we find out in scripture that her entire lineage was redeemed. As Craig was saying in the, in the Gospels, in the genealogies of Matthew, and look, we find out that Rahab was the great-great-grandmother of King David. And therefore, she was the ancient ancestor of Jesus, the Messiah. So think about that. King David and King Jesus came from a prostitute. A person who you in the natural would say has no business producing greatness, but faith. Now I connect to that reality very, very personally and intimately in my, own, my, my family's story, which I'd like to share a little piece right here. Um, a few years ago, I learned something about my lineage that I, I never knew. I was asking my mother, to just share with me some more of my family's faith journey. Because as far as I knew, we all just grew up in church. I didn't, I didn't, on my mother's side, that's all I knew. We all just grew up in church. And so I was asking her, and she told me this. She told me that when she was a little girl in Puerto Rico, which is where my family is from, her great-grandmother, her grandmother, and her mother were Santeria priestesses. I don't know if any of you know what Santeria is, but... Suffice it to say, it's a, it's a syncretistic amalgamation between Roman Catholicism, African spiritualism, and island spiritualism. And it's, it involves personal deities and demonic spirits and casting of spells and control and fear and a lot of dark stuff. And my 
great-great-grandmother, grandmother, and great-great-grandmother, great-grandmother, and grandmother were Santeria priestesses. When she told me this, quite honestly, I was appalled. Like, what the heck is in my lineage? What's in my, what's in my DNA, oh God? But then she told me that one day when she was a little girl, a preacher came into their village and he was going door to door, knocking on doors, inviting people to come to a meeting. So he came to my, my mother's, uh, their farm, invited them and they said yes and they went to this meeting under a tent. And at that meeting, this preacher preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true and unvarnished gospel of Jesus. And my great-grandmother walked the aisle and bent her knee in front of the entire community and she gave her life to Christ. And then my grandmother and then my mother walked the same aisle and the entire family was saved that day. And when they were saved that day, they gave up Santeria entirely. They completely renounced all of the works of Satan and they gave their lives to Christ. And my mother became the spiritual matriarch of my family, this powerful little woman of God whose prayers and work have affected people all around the world, but who raised five children to love God and to serve God. And to this day, all five of us are ministers of the gospel in some capacity. How could they ever have imagined what their lineage would produce way back then when they were doing incantations and demonic rituals? But an A leap of faith changed the entire destiny of the family line. Praise God. Praise God. And that's what faith does. And that brings me to the third and last lesson that I, I really feel like the Lord wants to bring out is that in response to faith, God is no respecter of persons. What he did for Rahab And what he did for my great-grandmother, he will do for me and he will do for you. For any one of us, wherever he finds faith. Because God is not a respecter of person. He's a respecter of faith in whomever he finds it. So, my friends, that means this great news. That you nor I have to be of the right family or have the right last name or have the right look or have the right skin color or be male or female or have the right ethnicity. None of those things register in heaven. None of those things matter to God. The only thing he responds to is faith. And that includes the past that we have, the, the things that we've done. You know, I just really feel prompted in my heart that there, there, there may be folks sitting here and going, I hear what you're saying, but it's kind of bouncing off because you don't really, you don't really know me. You, you don't really know where I've been. You don't really know that the things I've done. You don't know the lifestyles I've chosen you don't know. And I just feel in my heart to tell you, my friend, I, it's true, I don't know you, but God does. He knows you intimately. He knows every single thing about you better than you know yourself. And he is not intimidated by your sin or your past or your failure 
or your weakness. He's not impressed. What he's impressed by is a leap of faith. When God finds faith in anyone, he says, I can work with that. I can work with that. So my friends, sometimes we feel like I, I, gotta, I gotta clean it up. I gotta get it all together before I can come to this holy God. And it's all backwards. Because you can't do that. I can do that. That's my job. That's my job. But you just come to me. You come to me and let me do what I do that you can't do. And watch what I will do in your life. Watch what I will do through your life and your children and their children into a thousand generations. Amen.